0: Hey gang, good morning. Good morning online and uh, happy Mother's Day, moms. Happy Mother's Day to you. What a beautiful day to celebrate as well. Uh, We just, I just want to take a second to say, uh, moms, grandmas, people who act as mentors and take on that mom role in other people's lives, you women, all of you, you're just so, you're so awesome. You are so awesome, and we celebrate you. We love you, uh, and we just want to say thank you. I want to say thank you. Church wants to say thank you for who you are and what you do. So, uh, honestly, happy Mother's Day. We hope today's a great day of celebrating. And uh, I just have two Mother's Day sorts of things to tell you about before we launch into the message. Number one is, uh, you may have seen on your way in, we have a photo booth set out in the in the lobby here at Essex. Uh, that's for you guys to take advantage of. Now, let me uh, talk to the any kids or husbands or... Uh, Dad's in the room here just take the picture, okay? Would you just go out there, stand with your mom, look nice, look happy, smile, let her, give her a chance to post it on Facebook later so her other mom friends can go, oh, your family's so lovely, and you know, that's, that's what we're doing, okay? So uh, can I give you some advice, kids, dads? Go take the stupid picture with your with the mom, and uh, yeah, yeah, let me, yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, give her a chance to, to celebrate that way. You want her to look back at you and say, oh, my kid was so great great. You know, you don't want to. So take the picture. Okay. That's number one. Number two is, um, as Megan said in the video announcements that we are, uh, we've done this last few years, but uh, ladies, we want you to have an ice cream on us. This is just a small way we can say thanks and hopefully you feel special and celebrated. So this is for all you ladies if you want to grab. I think we have coupons out in the lobby or you can go on the church website and uh, you can download and print out the coupon uh, today only. But you can use it all week. And this is for a free small ice cream or creamy as uh, you Vermonters call them at a, a local establishment. We've got three places you can go to. Owls in South Burlington, we all know Owls, we all love Owls, right? Owls, Village Scoop in Colchester, or, and this is just my personal favorite. This isn't proven scientifically. This is just the opinion of one man who believes uh, that Sweet Scoops is the best creamy around right down the road here from our Essex campus. So you can disagree with me, but um, you know, you'd be wrong. But go to Sweet Scoops, have a, have a creamy, and uh, just we hope you feel celebrated. So happy Mother's Day to you guys. We love you. Appreciate you so much. Uh, so today we're, we're diving into our message. It's kind of week two of a two-week kind of stopover series as Pastor Scott's been away the last couple Sundays where we're, uh, we're trying to take these like couple abstract ideas and see if we can ground these abstract thoughts and ideas into a healthy, vibrant faith and see what its role is and how it fits and all that stuff. So last week, if you were here or if you missed it, we talked about the idea of beauty, right? Beautiful things. It's an abstract idea. And how beauty really is, uh, when we appreciate it, behold it, or create beautiful things, really is a sacred pursuit in our life. And if you want to catch up on that message or any message, go to our YouTube channel. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about another abstract idea and attempt to to do the same. And today, we're going to be talking about imagination, the imagination, and how imagination is and can be and should be grounded in a healthy, vibrant faith. Uh, I've got two kids, my younger son, Levi, he's six years old. He has a very active imagination. He uh, is, uh, he'll be sitting there, and I'll see it happen, you know, he's kind of muttering to himself under his breath, and I know he's uh, up to something in his brain, and, uh, you know, if I need his attention, I'll call, hey, Levi, and no response, right? Levi, no response, and then I grab, I shake up Levi, and finally get his attention. He's like, what? You know, okay, I just started talking to him. I'm like, this, uh, it's, he can't hear what we're saying to him because he's so wrapped up in his imagination. And we, we call this in our house, Levi-land. And Levi, hey, we get his attention. And we're like, Levi, were you in Levi-land? And he's like, yeah. I'm like, what's up in Levi-land? And he'll, he'll tell us whatever elaborate, crazy scheme he's up to in his brain there. Um, he has this very creative and active imagination. So as we talk about imagination today, uh, this... This is not what I want you to think of when we think of imagination, the sort of pretend thing, although it's all kind of wrapped together, right? It's, it's all part and parcel, but um, this sort of creative, imaginative play of a child, yes, is sort of the forerunner in the development of the imagination as an adult, but I don't want us to think of imagination purely as uh, the make-believe or the pretend. That's not quite where I want us to be today. I wanna to read two definitions for you. So you'll see those on the screen. The first definition is the definition for imagination in the Oxford English Dictionary. It's defined as the faculty or action of forming new ideas or images or concepts of external objects not present to the senses. Makes sense. Now, uh, let me read another definition for you. This one comes out of scripture, out of the Bible. is uh, how faith is defined in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. It says this, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. You notice maybe any similarities between these two definitions. Imagination is being able to see and create uh, ideas and concepts of uh, something external to ourselves that we presently aren't able to see or taste or touch or feel, right? It's to dream and to hope and and to create. Eh, Maybe we could say to possess something without possessing it, right? And faith, according to the Bible is not so different from imagination, and in fact, it goes another step from imagination. Faith not only uh, sees these things, but is confident that what we can't see or feel or taste or touch, it's confident that it's real and that it matters. Imagination allows us to believe something is possible, and faith not only believes it's possible, but that it's true, and that it matters. Imagination, I think, is an act of faith, and I'd go so far to even say that imagination is necessary as we develop a healthy and vibrant faith. But for many of us, many churches, many Christians in general, imagination, we don't really talk about it much. It doesn't play a role really in our faith day to day. And there's a couple major reasons why. Number one is historical. And number two is just kind of developmental. So let me talk about those two reasons. First, the historical reason why imagination isn't part of our, uh, you know, how we think about faith and approach it. Uh, The historical reason is that uh, in the 20th century, we saw the rise of uh, what we call today, modernism. It was this cultural and social movement that came along with three major changes throughout the 20th century. Three major changes were um, the rise of industrialization, uh, the advance of science, and uh, this near global adaptation of um, capitalism, okay? So we have factories and systems and like long-range transportation being developed that made the world more connected and uh, more productive. We also had advances in science and physics and chemistry and astronomy and these discoveries that were being made um, that uh, brought and led us to answers to many long-standing questions. And even now, new and more complex questions were developed as a result of it. And some of these theories uh, that arose during the 20th centuries were uh, ideas such as evolution or uh, how the whole universe even began, right? The Big Bang, okay? And we had discoveries of new planets and new subatomic particles, and all these scientific advances began to threaten some of the long standing answers that Christianity claimed to have to those questions, right? Where do we come from? How we got here? What's our meaning? Well, now those sorts of questions and the answers that we had to those were now under attack from what we were discovering and theorizing in science. We also had the rise of capitalism, which brought new opportunities to countless people for work and prosperity, longer hours spent in the workplace, new priorities, took up a space that many of us had, many people had, for slower-paced activities, time with family, worship, fellowship, all those sorts of things. And as modernism began to rise throughout the early part of the 20th century, the church, Christians, especially in America, began to react against it, felt threatened. So uh, many Christians formed a new commitment to some of the fundamental aspects of the Christian faith, and this is where fundamentalism was birthed from, if you're interested in that, And along with this birth and fundamentalism came now a new focus on logical argumentation for the validity of the Christian faith, right? As science was growing and new discoveries were being made and new uh, ideas and truths were being brought out, so the church started to think about the faith in more reasonable, logical ways and to argue for truth in what it claimed, And people were drawn to the church because of good argumentation for truth, which is good, right? Because Christianity is built on truth. If Christianity isn't true, then it doesn't matter. But the fact is, Jesus' death and resurrection historically happened. It's true. If it didn't, Christianity is meaningless, right? It's all hinging on the fact that this thing did, in fact, really happen. And Jesus, if you read scripture, uh, he called himself the way, the truth, and the life, right? We follow the one who is named truth all around us. We all love C.S. Lewis, right? We all love C.S. Lewis. If you're unfamiliar with C.S. Lewis, he was an author, a, pa- a theologian, a Christian thinker in the, in the 20th century. He wrote lots of books, um, imaginative books, creative books, Chronicles of Narnia, you may have heard of that, if you've, even if you haven't heard of C.S. Lewis. Um, Books about heaven, books about faith and Christian thought. C.S. Lewis had a vibrant imagination and a vibrant faith in Jesus. And he said this about the lack of imagination in the church in general. He said, our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. And It's true. We are too easily pleased by small things. And if we would only dare to imagine what could be church, I'd say we might even dare to storm the gates of hell. So let's see if we can recapture some of this role of imagination in our faith. I believe imagination is both biblical and necessary for a vibrant, healthy faith. Now, the Bible never explicitly talks about the imagination, but throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, what, much of what God does is focus on capturing the imagination of people. Not just the intellect, and even not just the affection but the imagination. There's lots of examples I can give from the Old Testament, um, like the way the tabernacle or the uh, temple were set up and laid out and how the priests would handle sacrifices. They all symbolize something bigger than themselves, pointed to something else. Or the visions that God gave to the prophets um, or the signs and wonders that he did uh, among the people, both friend and enemy. But I want to go to one specific story to kind of get this point across. It's Ezekiel chapter 4. Now, Ezekiel, he was a prophet, and he was around during the 6th century B.C., so 600 years before Jesus. And he was active in Israel prior to um, the Babylonians coming, destroying the city of Jerusalem, and taking away the people into exile. That happened in 586 B.C. So he was around and active before that. And he went with the exiles to Babylon, and he was around and active there in Babylon as well. Uh, In the generations leading up to this moment, the people of Israel um, had lost touch with God. They stopped caring. They, uh, at best, performed sort of obligatory, perfunctory acts of worship, if they did it at all. And often, they just straight-up worshipped other gods, They lost sight of who God was and what was possible with him and through him and in him. I think their imagination began to run dry. They couldn't imagine how God would would, uh, benefit them. And their faith followed. So God called Ezekiel to call the people back to himself. And to warn them of what was coming if they didn't come back. But he didn't send Ezekiel to the people with words. This is what he did in Ezekiel 4. So we'll go to verse 1. This is God telling Ezekiel what he's going to do. God says to him, now, son of man, take a block of clay, right? A block of clay, put it in front of you, and draw the city of Jerusalem on it. Then lay siege to it. Erect siege works against it, build a ramp up to it, set up camps against it, and put battering rams around it. Then take an iron pen and place it as an iron wall between, the city, between you and the city and uh, turn your face towards it. It will be under siege and you will besiege it. This will be a sign to the people of Israel. They're going to see this. This is a sign to them of something, okay? Then he says to him, lie on your left side And put the sin of the people of Israel upon yourself. You are to bear their sin the number of days you lie on your side. So as long as uh, they've walked away from him, he's going to lay there on his side for that many days. He said, I've signed you the same number of days as the years of their sin. So for 390 days, you'll bear the sin of the people of Israel. (laughs) We'll stop there for a sec. So God tells Ezekiel, right, to make a little model of the city of Jerusalem. Block of clay, draw it on there. And then he says, you're going you're to make around it like, like an army attacking of it. Siege towers and encampments and battering rams, right? Think about those little green army men you had when you were kids and setting them up around the house. That's what Ezekiel's doing. He's making a little war zone with the city of Jerusalem at the center. And then he says, you're going to lie down next to it for 390 days as a sign to the people, a living picture. No words, just a picture. And it gets even better. (laughs) Then God tells him, hey, after this 390 days, you're going to flip sides and lay down on your right side for 40 more days. He tells him to do that. He could have just sent Ezekiel with words, right? Hey guys, bad things are going to happen, but he doesn't. He sends Ezekiel with this living picture because I think God's going after something more than just our intellect. He wants people to see and feel what's still to come, to imagine the future that is yet to unfold. It gets better than this though. So Ezekiel, he's laying around for 430 days. He's got some time on his hands. That's a long time. That's a long time. He needs a food plan. And God also needs to tell the Israelites something else. That when they're taken away, they're going to eat food that, according to their laws and custom, is unclean. So he, uh, God tells Ezekiel, here's your food plan. He says, go gather some ingredients and portion it out to make food every day. And if we hop down to verse 12, he tells him to eat the food as you would a loaf of barley bread. Bake it in the sight of the people, right, in front of everyone using human excrement for fuel. And the Lord said, in this way, the people of Israel will eat defiled food among the nations where I'll drive them out. Uh, Now, if you're like me, you're uh, thinking about what you're having for lunch today as you sit there and your plans. Um, Whatever you're having, it's going to be much better than what Ezekiel's got going on, okay? Uh, He he says, in, in front of everybody, you're going to cook your food, and he tells him, Uh, you know, you're going to cook it over burning uh, human uh, excrement. Keep it PG. (laughs) This is another sign for them. Another thing for them to picture is God doesn't just go after the intellect, our rational selves, right? He goes after something deeper, something, something more vivid, I think God goes after the imagination because imagination is so deeply tied in with faith. And we'll continue to pull this thread through the New Testament. Jesus taught in parables. Parables are word pictures. They're stories that are meant for the listener to imagine themselves as part of the story. He taught in parables. He did miracles that were meant to point to something else through their imaginations. In John 6... Jesus feeds 5,000 men and a lot more people too. The next day, uh, all the people come and find him and track him down. They were like, Jesus, yesterday you gave us food. You were talking about food that will never go hungry again if we eat it. Give us some more of that food. And Jesus says, no, you don't understand. It's not the food I'm giving you. He's, I'm the food. If you want life, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And then in John 6, 52, the people respond, how is it possible that this guy can give us his flesh to eat? They couldn't imagine what he was talking about beyond being a cannibal. They couldn't imagine it, and they couldn't believe it. So they all walk away. They all leave him. The Apostle Paul also encourages us to use our imaginations. Now, I want you to stick with me through this verse, and I'll explain what I mean. So this is Philippians 4.8, where he writes to us, Finally, brothers, whatever is true... Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, this is kind of conceptual, but again, stick with me here. He says, think about what is true and honorable and uh, pure and lovely and just. That's what Paul says. Think about, but not just think about what is pure and the nature of purity. He says, think about whatever is pure. Think about what it means to be pure. What does that look like? Don't just think about the nature of justice, but think about what justice looks like, how to bring justice to people experiencing injustice and unjust situations. I think he's speaking to our imaginations here because imagination is the pathway to apply God's call in the world and in our lives. Imagination is the force that trespasses on the impossible. Imagination refuses to let our senses determine what's possible. Imagination grabs hold of the kingdom of God and shows us how to live it out even when it doesn't make sense. Let me quote C.S. Lewis again. He puts it this way. For me... Reason is the natural organ of truth, but imagination is the organ of meaning. Imagination, producing new metaphors or revivifying old, is not the cause of truth, but its condition. Let me put it this way. In our faith, truth does the shopping, but imagination makes the meal. Without imagination, truth will stay on the shelf will never make its way into our hands because imagination helps us to see what to do with the truth and because of that imagination is necessary for a healthy vibrant faith so how can we us often unimaginative adults how can we cultivate our imaginations and begin to integrate it more into our faith so, I just want to offer six suggestions this morning for cultivating the imagination. Six suggestions to, to, uh, to sharpen it. A few of them are just going to be kind of generic, but a couple of them are going to be more related directly to faith in our, our spiritual lives. So, uh, here we go six suggestions for cultivating our imagination. Number one read a book. Read a book. And when I say read a book, I mean really read a book. Some of you are audiobook people, and that's fine. You can listen to a book. That's good. But if you want to really strengthen your imagination, I'd encourage you, pick up a book or download it on your Kindle or whatever and and open the pages and let your inner voice do the talking and string the words together. And let your imagination do the work of speaking and visualizing the world that you're reading about. And when you do that, you can place yourself in the story. Maybe as an observer, or maybe you identify with one of the characters and can see the world through their eyes. We're going to go back to our good buddy, C.S. Lewis. He's our good buddy today, so we're going to quote him one more time. He said this about his reading. In reading great literature, I become a thousand men and yet remain myself. Like the night sky in the Greek poem, I see with a myriad of eyes, but it is still I who see. When we read, we inhabit a world that we can't see or feel or taste or touch, and your imagination can make it so. The Bible is a great book to read and immerse yourself in and let your imagination go to work. The Bible contains stories from a world and a culture that we are at least 2,000 years removed from, a culture we don't quite understand because we're not part of it. And there's vivid imagery and beautiful poetry and metaphors and stories that, that when we read, we can inhabit those stories. And when we do that, we can draw out meaning, we can discover truth and allow God to speak to us, all from the act of using our imagination to inhabit the pages of our Bibles so I'd encourage you, sharpen your imagination, read a book. Second way that we can begin to sharpen our imagination is by s- to set goals. Set goals, right? Setting goals thinks, uh, means that we're thinking about the future, dreaming about a world that doesn't exist yet, right? It's the future. So take time to sit down and evaluate where you're at and where you want to be, right? At work, as a family, in your finances, with your, maybe your small group or your Bible study, do that together. Set some goals, Short-term, long-term, doesn't matter. So when we set goals, we give our minds a chance to wander and think about questions like, how would it feel to accomplish this? Or how would that change my life? Or uh, what step do I need to take to get there? And answering those sorts of questions is an act of imagination, you're thinking of the future, a world that doesn't exist yet, and how it feels, and what it looks like, and what, it's gonna, what you're going to do. It's all an act of imagination. Setting goals helps to sharpen the imagination. Uh, third thing I'd say to sharpen the imagination is to create something. Uh, creative endeavors are proven to strengthen imagination, and they lead to more creativity. So when you create something, whether it's a, a song or a painting, or a plate of food that you put together. When we create something, we see an idea become reality. And as we work in that process of making an idea become reality, whatever it is, we learn that it's possible. And I know for many of us, once we can learn something's possible, the next question for us becomes, what else is possible? What else can I do? What's next? And with that question, your imagination can go nuts. Uh, Fourth way to cultivate the imagination is to be curious and ask questions. Ask questions. So many of us, you know, we live in routine. We've subconsciously or intentionally created uh, techniques and strategies for being good at life. We have a daily routine, how we get up in the morning, when we work out, when we eat, all that stuff. And we do things because we're used to it or because it's comfortable, or we know that it works for us, so we just kind of do those things. And most of the time, we don't really even need to think about it, we just do it. And that's part of what keeps our imagination docile and atrophied. So I'd say start asking questions. Ask questions of yourself, like, why do I do this? When did I start doing this? Do I even like doing this? Does it make me happy? Ask those questions. Maybe in the workplace, ask yourself those questions as well. How, what can I do today to be more productive? Or what relationship do I need to be more intentional about? Ask questions that will break up your routine and, and get your brain thinking about the why and the how of things. Even if it just gets you back to where you're at. Oh yeah, I answered all those questions and what I do, I like doing and I want to keep doing it. Ask the questions. Get your brain engaged with evaluating not only how things are, but how things could be better. It's a way to sharpen your imagination. All right, I promised some ones that were more spiritual and related to faith, so I got a couple for you. How to cultivate the imagination. Number one here, number five overall, number five, we'll call it. Live on mission. Live on mission. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray in Matthew chapter six, we refer to this as the Lord's Prayer. You're probably familiar. Part of that prayer says to God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus' followers are called to imagine what could be and what will be while we're still living in what currently is. And this prayer, your kingdom come, is a cry out to God to bring what will be into what is. Change the world, Lord. Bring your kingdom to earth. And here's the crazy part of all that, is that God uses us as part of that process. You are uniquely created and gifted and called by God to start bringing the unseen into what is seen. And when we live on mission, that's what we're doing. It starts with the faithful act of imagining that what is can be better, and all for God's glory. There's a man named Cameron Townsend. And Cameron Townsend was the founder of Wycliffe Bible Translators and the Summer Institute of Linguistics, which is um, one of the leading Bible translating organizations in the world, having produced Bible translations in well over 500 languages across the world, as well as pioneering much of the strategy and um, translation techniques that are used today by Bible translators. Uh, In 1917, Cameron Townsend, he went to uh, Guatemala, and he went there to sell Spanish Bibles to some of the indigenous populations living there in Guatemala, but he discovered that when he went to these indigenous populations, many of them couldn't read, and all of them, most of them, didn't know how to speak the, the majority culture language, Spanish, They had their own language. And as a result, these indigenous populations were becoming increasingly outcast from society and culture. They couldn't uh, do business. They couldn't integrate. They couldn't do any of those things because of those barriers. Now, uh, the typical mission strategy of the day was for a missionary to be sent or a couple missionaries to be sent to a place um, to plant a church and they'd slowly build a population of believers there in, the, in, the, in their country. And then once they had a good core group, those missionaries would leave and repeat the process somewhere else, right? Thus effectively creating churches as they go. But uh, when Cameron Townsend was out in Guatemala, he saw the very clear gaps in this mission strategy. He saw that whole people groups were being left in the dust because of different barriers, one of them being language that he experienced. And many governments were starting to become more cautious of allowing uh, these sorts of faith missionaries to come into their country and do this religious work. Uh, So he saw these gaps and these challenges and he began to think about it and ask questions and he was learning and, and Cameron Townsend imagined that there must be a better way of reaching some of these people who were remaining unreached. So, Instead of working as a typical missionary, Townsend developed a language school. He took a different approach. He developed a language school. And his strategy was that he was going to work in tandem with the government, with their blessing and with their assistance, to go to these indigenous populations, teach them the majority of culture, language, and begin to see them be a part of society and commerce and all that. So he created a language school instead of a missions organization. And this strategy was seen as pretty controversial at the time by many missionaries and churches and organizations, but it was effective in doing a few things. It gave access and assistance from the government to the country and to the people. They had the blessing and the help that they needed. It allowed him to translate the Bible into different languages. It allowed him to teach the Bible and to teach Jesus to people through the study of language. And it brought practical benefit to these groups of people that were being left out of um, society and helped them prosper. And this sort of kingdom of God work started with the imagination of a man who believed that there was a better way than what was being done and the work and the organization he started grew and grew and grew. I'm reading a book right now about the history of uh, this organization, Wycliffe Bible Translators, and uh, in that, it says this about uh, Cameron Townsend. It says that the young Cameron Townsend was himself an expression of this American peripatetic urge. That just means um, like constantly moving around. It was an impulse that, when combined with more than a touch of idealism, imagined something bigger and better just over the horizon. Therefore, as a missionary, he was instinctively drawn to pioneer where other missionaries had yet to tread. When we live on mission, we are taking truth through our imaginations into our hands and feet. put into practice the world that we believed could be true. Whether it's starting a missions organization or starting a Bible study in your home, um, or just getting a coffee with that friend of yours who you know is having a hard time. Living on mission is truth in action. And we can see what's possible because we can imagine it. And that allows us to do it. Living on mission is a great way to sharpen your imagination and bring the kingdom of God to earth piece by piece. Final way I'll suggest that we can sharpen our imaginations and integrate into our faith is to dare to hope. Hope is an act of faith-filled imagination. Much like uh, when we live on mission, hope imagines a better future for ourselves and for the world. Hope tells us that God's not done yet, that God wins even if it doesn't look like he's winning right now. Hope imagines and believes that what's coming is better than what is. Hope sustains us in the valleys of our lives. Because hope imagines what it's going to be like on the mountaintop. The book of Revelation is a book of hope. It was written to the church during a time of great persecution. People were dying and people were afraid. And God gave this book to his people so they could hope. And if you read the book of Revelation, a lot of bad stuff goes on to God's people and in the world. But what it shows us is that behind it all, God is in control, winning the battle of good versus evil. And he does win. Even when things look bad, God wins. And his people win. And at the end of the book of Revelation, I love these verses, I talk about them a lot. We get a picture of what the future could look like and will look like. A picture that should give us hope, no matter how dark things look right now. So here's Revelation 21. This is the author of Revelation seeing this picture and telling us about it. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Hope imagines this picture in the darkest moments and believes that it's true, that it's coming true. And no matter how bad things might look in our lives right now and in our world, guess what? God wins and we win with him. Imagination dares to hope in the unseen reality of the victory of God's kingdom. So we're gonna take a moment now and just dare to hope together. We're gonna end our time by singing. We're just gonna sing a a quick verse and chorus and sing out of this hope, this faith-filled imagination, knowing that what's coming is better than what is, and that God wins. So um, at home, here in this room, I'd ask that you stand as we sing together out of this faith-filled imagination, confident that what is unseen
1: will one day
0: be seen. Let's sing.
1: How great the chasm that lay between us How high the mountain I could not climb In desperation I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night. Then through the darkness, your loving kindness tore through the shadow.
0: Imagination sees what we cannot see and helps us to make it seen in this world. Gets us through the valleys because we know there's a mountaintop waiting for us. So friends, let's not neglect our imaginations anymore. Let's put them to work. And as we do, see the world around us change for God's glory. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for this oh, Wonderfully weird faculty we have called the imagination that we can see pictures and hear sounds that aren't in front of us. You fill our imaginations with faith so that as we hear your truth or read it or experience it, we know what to do with it. We can see very practically how to take what we're given and put it back out there into the world for your glory and for the sake of our brothers and sisters and our neighbors. God, sanctify our imaginations. Help us to live one mission well. And Lord, in the hard times in our lives, would our imagination drive our hope? Not in fantasy and not in pretend, but in the absolute truth that you are coming again. So, God, as we go from this place, we ask that you would go with us. Help us to see and help us to live in the reality of that which we cannot see. In Christ's name, amen. Amen, church. It's great to be with you as always.